Brian, uh, Romans chapter 2. Before we go into that, let me uh, just re, uh, make a note about the memorial for Chuck Bartholomew. The information is in the bulletin. Pay attention to it. If you're planning, particularly if you're planning on coming to the memorial, there'll be a lunch at the end of the memorial service here. Then there's going to be a uh, opportunity to go out to Fort Rich where the uh, military honors will be done. If you're planning on going to that, you need to sign up on the sheet that's right outside these doors on the table. You have to give your information, your name and driver's license number and et cetera. It's all there. You can see what is needed. You can't get on unless that is pre-done. So either this week or next week at the lace, I think Sandy said she would have it out on the 8th as well. Um, make sure that you sign it up for that. Otherwise, you would not be able to go out there. And that includes kids as well. Uh, information needs to be there. Okay? All right, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you now as we come to this part of our time of worship this morning where we go kind of deep dive into your word. Thank you for it. Thank you for preserving, giving and preserving your word for your people to know you better, to know how we are to live in a way that will bring you glory to know how we can come to know you, to be certain that we know you. So help us as we go into our study in the book of Romans to receive from you what we need. And I mean that individually, Lord, not only as a church body, but individually. You know every heart. You know what is needed in every person's life. You know every thought, every word before it's spoken. You know everything. So we would pray that you and your sovereign uh, workings would deal wonderfully in our hearts and in our minds uh, through the scriptures this morning to the glory of your great name and the Savior whom we love and in whose name we pray. Amen. So it's been six weeks since we've been in Romans together. I had a few weeks off with my knee replacement surgery, and then we had uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, and now we're going back into Romans. Um, and just to let you know, there, there'll be a couple more weeks at some point this month, uh, two or three weeks, where I'll be gone either to a wedding in Colorado, a granddaughter's wedding, or down to Biloxi uh, with my wife to help care for her sister who's getting her second knee replacement surgery. So my wife is nurse par excellence now on knee replacement surgery. So if any of you have that done, just call her. She would love to serve you in that way. She's so good at it by now. She's had much practice. So, Okay, so we are in the book of Romans. We started it a while ago, and since it's been six weeks, I thought it would be good just to do a quick review of where we've been in chapter 1 in, in, uh, of Romans. Oh, by the way, Romans is Paul's theological treatise. It's his detailed explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And in chapter 1, in the first uh, seven verses or so, he establishes an official rapport with the church. As far as we know, he had not been there yet, so they knew who he was, but he's establishing his rapport as an apostle and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then in uh, the next part of it, he in 8 through 15, he establishes a personal report. He lets them know how much he cares for them, what he wants to accomplish when he comes to them, and what he wants to receive from them. It's, it's quite endearing. And then in verses 16 and 17, he gives the theme of the entire letter. It is, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that means how to have a right relationship with God is revealed uh, from faith to faith. For just as is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. So he sets that up. The theme of the letter is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is able to save. Save who? Sinners. And that's where he jumps in in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, is one long section where he is explaining why we need a right relationship with God, how we receive the righteousness of God, how it is revealed to us and why it is revealed to us. And essentially, one word sums up 118 through 320. It is the word condemnation. People are condemned before God because they are sinners. They've missed the mark of his glory. He will sum it up, in essence, moving into the next section in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned, they all continue to sin, and fall short of the glory of God. So sinners, God doesn't receive into heaven. Sinners can't spend forever with him. And we're all born sinners. And we received a sin nature via natural childbirth from our parents. It was passed down from Adam and Eve to their children and every human being born ever since, born with a sin nature. Uh, also, Adam's sin was imputed to our account, every human being's account. His sin of disobeying God was put on us. He was a federal head, if you will. He acted on, on behalf of... We don't like it, but he acted on behalf of the whole human race. Now, we do like the fact that Jesus acted on behalf of the human race. He was our second federal head, if you will. So we were born with the sin nature. We received Adam's sin imputed to our account. And thirdly, we are sinners by practice. We come out of the womb as sinners. And every parent knows that from the moment they bring their baby into their arms and take them home. It does not take long to realize, my child is not that angel from heaven. (laughs) My child is a sinner through and through. Just as David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Born a sinner. Guilt of Adam's sin and practice sinners. So we stand condemned, and that's the first major section, 118 through 320. In in 118 through the end of chapter 132, he is addressing a particular group of sinners, pagan, unbeliever, idolaters, who have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And God is revealing his wrath against them, against all sinners, but People who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they suppress the truth that there is a God 
who is, and one to whom they will give an account. And God has made himself known in creation, Paul says. His invisible attributes, his divine nature, his power, etc., have been seen by what he has made. It is clear. There is a God to whom we'll give an account. And he says, but instead of, of believing in and submitting to that God, they make gods of their own imagination. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And all different kinds of forms like birds and animals and crawling creatures and, yes, even themselves. And so they worship and serve the creature. They believe the lie rather than... Uh, than the truth about God. And so God gives them over. He gives them over to lustful passions and to depraved minds and to despicable behaviors. That's all 118 through 32. But what about the rest of us? I mean, how many of you are pagan, unbelieving idolaters? Not me. Say, I must be okay. Not so. Religious people, too. Sinners. And that's chapter 2, moving into chapter 3. And in chapter 2, he's he's dealing with self-righteous religious people. Now, in the context, it's clear his mind is mostly on Jewish people. As you move through the text, that it becomes clear because of the content of it. But it really applies to any self-righteous religious person who think that they are better than those pagan, unbelieving idolaters who deserve the wrath of God. And in fact, that's what they thought. Yes, Paul, lay it on those people. They deserve it. And Paul says, wait a minute, you deserve it too. For every time you point the finger at them saying they deserve it, you're pointing your finger at yourself because, he says, you practice the very same things. Now, maybe not the same exact behaviors, but it comes from the same sinful heart and the same sinful attitudes are present so he pronounces guilt on the self-righteous religious people too he says god knows the truth and he lays out the principles of god's divine justice system and and that is the first of them is that god knows the truth he knows what is actual he knows what is real he knows whether someone is self-righteous or whether they are righteous in christ He knows, and he judges according to the truth. Secondly, he says that he judges according to good deeds. Not in the sense that good deeds earn us a right relationship with God, but in the sense that he says, if Christ is real in your life, if you have been saved by the blood of Christ, then the evidence will be clear. It will be seen in your lives. If you can't see it in your lives, judgment is still coming upon you because how you live demonstrates what you believe the third he says the principle of divine justice is that god judges impartially he he looks the same at jews as he does gentiles he looks the same at the rich as he does at the poor he 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 doesn't use gender as a basis of judgment either men and women he sees them the, the same young old doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't even matter your religious background because you can still be religious and condemned. And, and that's chapter 2, 1 all the way through 16. And then in verse 17 through the, through the end of, 
of that chapter, Paul is basically saying there's such a thing as religion without righteousness. Now, by the way, I just want to point out, I was thinking about this all this week again. It's like, how much space is given in this front end dealing with condemnation for sin? How much space is given to the self-righteous religious people as opposed to the pagan, heathen, idolaters who are so wicked in everybody's eyes? Much more space is given to the self-righteous religious people. Why is that? Because that is the greater problem. Those are people who are harder to reach because they are so convinced that by virtue of their religion, their rituals, their practices, that they must be right with God. And Paul's laying it out. That is not the case. That is not the case. So starting in verse 17, he kind of lays that out, that uh, there's religion without righteousness. He first talks about the profession. Part of your insert is the last message that we had. You'll have one to fill in on it, and then it will be where we're going in chapter 3. But first was the profession of of the religious. He lays out several things that the religious would say about themselves. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, is it Jew? the law, God. You know his will and approve what is excellent. Two more. Because you are instructed from the law. In other words, you're learned. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of the truth. So from 17 through 20, what he's basically giving is the profession of the self-righteous person, the religious person. I've got all these things on my side that must add up to being right with God. Because, you know, I mean, God... Got grades on the curve, right? Those pagan idolaters, they're below the bell curve. But us religious people, we're above. We're going to pass. We're going to get a welcome into heaven. Welcome. And he's saying, this is what you think of yourself. He says, you're so wrong. And that's what he does in verses 21 through 24. He prosecutes the self-righteous people. Listen to his words again. You then who teach others. And he does this by way of um, questions that really don't, they're not interrogative questions. They're questions with the answers understood, right? It's understood. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? No, they weren't. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Yes, you do. You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? At least in your heart you are. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law. You are dishonoring God by breaking the law. Why? Because no one can keep the law perfectly, right? There was only one who did. One who could fulfill it. You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And then in verse 24, he kind of He really hammers them. He says, for it is written, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You self-righteous Jews. And particularly he's talking to the Jewish people. But we could, again, 
any self-righteous religious person. You cause the name of God to be blasphemed when you say, I'm on God's side, and then you live like you aren't. That's what he's saying. Your words don't match your reality. Your words don't match your life. And so in verse 25, and that's where we're really picking up, in verse 25, uh, through the end of the chapter, he's going to show the dis- some principles about the, the distinction between rituals and reality. Rituals and reality, if you're filling in your insert there. Now let me remind you, since it's been so long that we were here, Paul is using, all the way from chapter 2, verse 1, through this entire section, the literary technique called diatribe, which is where he establishes a straw man. He says, here's a self-righteous person, and I'm dialoguing with them. Now, Paul's doing the dialogue for both, but he's representing the religious person, and then he responds to the religious person. They had all these professions, and then he prosecuted them against their professions. Now, it is rituals versus reality. So, how would the straw man if you will, handle the stinging rebuke laid on him that Paul just did, prosecuting him to the max. Well, I think he would quite naturally take refuge in the fulfillment of religious rituals. Religious rituals. The religious Jew in particular would certainly draw attention to having been circumcised according to the law. The law was real clear about that in the Old Testament all the way when God made his covenant with Abraham. Eight days after birth, the, 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 a boy was to be circumcised. But this religious man might say, well, I bear the mark of the covenant of God made with Abraham. Uh, the mark sets me apart of, as being one of God's chosen people. Paul responds to the straw man by uh, identifying four principles that deal with the relationship between ritual and reality. And in doing so, he's going to challenge religious people who are trusting in rituals rather than in a right relationship that comes by faith. So the first principle is a a, a ritual with the spiritual reality is a value. A ritual with the spiritual reality is a value. That's Verse 25, the first part of it. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Now, what does he mean by of value? He means that there's spiritual value to it, to you. There's spiritual value to it in, in your relationship with God. So when he's talking about value here, he's talking about something that will enhance your life and honor God. So a ritual with the spiritual reality, there's value to that. And he puts it in those terms. For circumcision, that ritual indeed is of value if you obey the law, he says. If someone actually practiced doing what the law commanded, then circumcision, physical circumcision, would have been of value. Why? Because it would have been an indication that there had already been a spiritual circumcision that occurred in their lives. Circumcision of their heart. 
See, while physical circumcision was part of God's covenant with Abraham, and thus with all of his descendants, it was always intended by God to be a, a symbol of something that was a spiritual reality. Brian just pointed out to us the bread and the cup. They are symbols of uh, something that is of more value, the actual body of Christ and the blood of Christ. They're symbols. And that's what physical circumcision was. Now, listen, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. You have that, Joel? There you are. Thank you. Listen to this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, your heart, and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the truth is, if your heart isn't circumcised, then you will not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all your being. You won't. Or Jeremiah 4, 4 says, God calling out to the people, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn uh, with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Those were circumcised, physically circumcised people. And he says, you've got to have your heart circumcised. You've got to cut away the the insensitive part of your heart that is resisting and stubborn against God and his purposes. You've got to circumcise your heart. Jumping into the New Testament, Stephen and his trial before the Sanhedrin, which will end with his stoning and death, he cries out to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7.51, You stiff-necked people! uncircumcised in heart and ears. They were all physically circumcised. He's condemning them for their lack of a heart that was, you know, a heart that was uncircumcised. You always, he says, resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Now listen, this principle that there's a spiritual, where there's a spiritual reality, the ritual has value, well, that, that applies to more than circumcision. We can apply this in the Christian world as well. Uh, water baptism, for example, which is oftentimes seen very much like circumcision was to the Jew. Water baptism became for the church. It was kind of the one thing that you did that identified you as uh, a member of the church. Well, water baptism is a value if it pictures you having already been immersed in the body of Christ by faith in Christ. A spiritual baptism, a waterless baptism where you're immersed in Christ by faith. Then water baptism has value because it reminds you of what's already occurred inside of you. Just like the emblems have value to us because it reminds us of what Christ did for us, what he's already accomplished for us in forgiving our sins through his sacrifice. Or the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, uh, you know, most people, most Protestants see baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion 
the Eucharist is called different things, but see those as the two ordinances of the church, that the two things that Christ specifically commanded the church to do. Jesus commanded the disciples, go out and uh, teach people about me, to observe all of that, but baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize people. And then, of course, that's what happened in Acts 2. In Acts 2, first Christian sermon Peter preached, 3,000 people surrendered to the Lord. They repented of their sins and turned to Christ in faith and were water baptized. And right there, it meant they were already baptized into Christ before they ever put their foot in the water. And, and, and so the Lord's Supper was the same way. There's value to it if you've truly believed in the sacrifice of Christ made for sinners, then remembering the Lord that way has meaning. But, yeah, it doesn't, if you haven't received the sacrifice of Christ for your salvation. Being a member of a local church, you could liken it that way as well. It is a value, as long as the reality of being a member of the universal church of Christ through faith in Christ, is true of you. There is value to ritual if there's a reality behind it. The second principle, a ritual has no value without the reality. And that's the latter part of verse 25. There's no value to the ritual without the reality. He says, puts it this way, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So circumcision was a sign of the covenant, right, that God made with Abraham. And, but the covenant certainly went beyond that physical act. I mean, obedience to what God commands is an indication that the covenant has been believed and received. It wasn't what eight-day-old baby can say, I believe in the covenant. No, no. He would be circumcised, be taught what that would mean, and that it was representative of the circumcision of the heart through repentance and faith in what God has revealed, and obedience to the law would be an indication that that was true, that there was a, a circumcision of the heart. So there was no value to one who was circumcised if he didn't obey the law. That's what Paul says. And likewise, there is no value to remembering the Lord to partaking of communion uh, through the bread and the cup for one who has not believed and received the Lord. And you can do it, but there's no value to it. It doesn't mean anything to you, is what he's saying. It doesn't make you okay for a week. It doesn't make you right with God for a week. I've got to do it next week. You know, no, no. Without the reality, there's no value to the ritual. There is no value to water baptism for one who has not been united with Christ to, in, uh, in his death and resurrection. Paul will explain that pr pretty much in detail in Romans chapter 6. He'll address it again. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Brian was reading earlier, Paul claimed that the believer may get sick or even die if he partakes of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He's like, well, maybe I should never partake because I don't know that I'm worthy. Well, no, you never will be worthy. That's right. it, it doesn't say be worthy. What it says, 
partake in an unworthy manner. What he means by that, if you read the text, 17 through 23, up above where Brian was reading, he's talking about how the Corinthians were doing the Lord's Supper. They were all gathering together, and they would do it mixed with the meal, kind of like the meal that we do afterwards. And some people were coming in, and they were pigging out before others got there, and they were filling themselves, and others wouldn't get any food. And, and, and there was wine at those meals, and some people would come in, and they'd drink, and they drank so much that they were getting drunk, and others wouldn't have any. He says, you're dishonoring the Lord's table because you are dishonoring what the table represents, that Christ has made us one body through his sacrificial death. And to partake in an unworthy matter, manner would be such that, well, I come, I've got grievances against people in the church, I won't even talk to them, I'll avoid them, but I'll sit down and I'll drink, I'll eat the bread and I'll drink the cup, and it's all cool because, you know, I'm remembering Jesus. That's dishonoring the Lord's table. If we hold on to sin while we're remembering that Christ died for our sin, how can that not be but partaking in an unworthy manner? He says, for you believers, you who are truly believers, if you do that, you risk getting sick and maybe even bringing about your death because the Lord wants to be honored in that ritual. But it takes the reality being present for that to have any meaning, right? Third principle. Third principle. The reality without the ritual is actually sufficient. Look at verse 26. Since God looks at the heart rather than the outward appearance, for Samuel 7, you know, God, don't look like, don't look at people like God uh, from a man's perspective. Look at it from God's perspective. He looks at the inward man. What's more important to God is the reality rather than the ritual. So he says, Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law. Now, who do you think he's talking about in this context? Greeks, Gentiles. That's right, those who didn't have the law because Jews got circumcised. So he's talking about Gentiles here. So there's an uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the principles of the law. Why? Well, we saw it in chapter 2, verse 4. 14 and 15, that God writes his moral law on the hearts of all people, regardless of whether they have the written law. So they keep the moral requirements of the law because God's written it on their heart. They've trusted in Christ. But then he says, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Yes, it will. God will look at him as circumcised. Why? Because his heart has been circumcised. Circumcision of the heart was of more value than circumcision of the flesh. Being spiritually baptized into Christ is more important than water baptism. Water baptism only represents what has already taken place in the heart that we've been immersed into Christ's body through faith. Mm, the, the same is true of the Lord's Supper. Belief in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, putting your faith in him, is more important than partaking of the bread and the cup. This doesn't mean, by the way, that there's no value to the Lord's Supper or to water baptism or church membership or other 
religious rituals. It just means that the reality is more important than the ritual. And believe me, if you have the reality in your life, then the ritual becomes important to you as well. You'll want to remember the Lord. You'll want to follow the, the Lord in baptism because he commanded it. He said, that will honor me. That will honor the Father and the Holy Spirit. You'll want to do that. You'll want to be a member of a local church because you've already been made a member of the universal church through faith in Christ. Number four, fourth principle. The person who has the reality, but not the ritual. This is a long one. The person who has the reality, but not the ritual, will judge the person who has the ritual, but not the reality. There's a whole lot of ritual and reality in that one. Let me say it again. The person who has the, the ritual, or the reality, but not the ritual, will judge the person who has the ritual, but not the reality. That's verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised, that's the Gentile, right? But keeps the law, because it's written on his heart, will condemn you, judge you, Jews, who have the written code, the law, and circumcision, but break the law. You've got the ritual, but you don't have the reality. They have the reality, and, and they're going to judge you. They have the reality and the ritual, but... They're going to judge you because you are missing what's most important, the reality. You have the ritual, they've got the reality. That's what he means when he says that. Uh, the Jew who habitually breaks the law has become, for all practical, practical pur purposes, uncircumcised. That, that would have been absolutely shocking for them to hear. Paul, what are you saying? Uncircumcised, not in the eyes of God. Because real circumcision is circumcision of the heart. In fact, people were uncircumcised Gentiles and yet believed God and had the moral law written on their heart and obeyed that moral law. He says, they're going to stand in judgment. That's what he says. They will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now, Paul does not mean that those who have the reality without the ritual will actually be the agents of judgment on the day when the Lord judges the hearts of all people. They won't be the actual agents. Rather, what he means is that their faith and conduct will serve as evidence of the absence of that in the lives of those who have the ritual but not the reality. It's kind of what Jesus said uh, when he was pronouncing woes on the cities of Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. For if the things that were done among you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. And then in Matthew, it says, they will rise up in the judgment and condemn you. Because they had the reality, but the Jews didn't have it. They only had the rituals. Okay, so let me sum this up. I don't think we're going into chapter 3 today. I, I don't know. I'm always, I've always got hope that we'll go further than we do. But we'll end at a good place. 
So the final two verses of this section, 28 and 29, can't miss this. It forms the conclusion really to the whole section, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. And what Paul is essentially saying is that being a genuine Jew is not a matter of being religiously outward, you know, religious outwardly. Or let's put it in the terms that we need to hear it. Being religious, a religious person in Christianity is not a matter of being religiously active. It's not an outward thing. It's an inward thing. It's not an external thing. Like for the Jews, like wearing phylacteries or paying tithes or being circumcised or making sacrifices that, you know, none of those things make for right relationship with God. Genuine circumcision, circumcision of the heart, it's not a physical right. It's a spiritual right. A genuine Jew, he says, is one inwardly. Did you get that? In inward, not outward, inwardly. And true circumcision is a matter of the heart. And he's not saying that physical circumcision wasn't important. God had made it important to the Jewish nation. But it meant nothing without the reality of circumcision of the heart. He says true circumcision is, read this carefully, is accomplished by the spirit, not by the letter. The Jews functioned under the letter, didn't they? You obeyed this law. And what the law did was it put external pressure for external living. And it would guilt, manipulate people into doing things. It It would bring about fear. Fear of condemnation if I don't do the right thing. So I better do the right things, otherwise I'll be condemned by God if I don't obey the external law, right? And that is not the nature of the gospel. Amen. The nature of the gospel is so different. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul is uh, speaking about the difference between the old and the new covenant, he says the old covenant was the letter written on stone, putting pressure on the outside. He said the gospel is the law written on soft human hearts. Hearts that are receptive to God's moral law written there. And they obey it. The the law could only produce temporary change. And it's pictured by Moses going into the tabernacle, speaking with God. When he'd come out, his face would be shining so brightly that it would cause confusion for people and he had put a veil over his head and as long as his face was shining he would keep the veil there and his face wasn't shining and take it off and people think well they do that because it's like blinding people's eyes no Paul makes it clear the reason that he would wear the veil wasn't because of how bright his face was it was because he didn't want people to see the glory shining on his face dissipating disappearing But that is the nature of the law. It can only produce temporary change. It cannot produce real inward change. That has to happen when God writes his laws on our heart. And he will only do that when we repent of our sins and we turn to Jesus in faith and we receive 
the gift of eternal life. And the Holy Spirit, circumcision by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he enters in. You know what he does? He cuts away the insensitive part of our being, and the core of our being. He cuts it away. That hardness that was there, that insensitivity to the things of God and the glory of God, it's removed. And he moves in. (laughs) And he leads us. And we walk by him. And we live by him. And his fruit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, his fruit then lives out of us. It's not something that we produce. He produces it in us. Just like the circumcision. He does it. We don't do it. So I would add to that that being a Christian is not a matter of church membership or a matter of being water baptized or partaking of the Lord's Supper or teaching a Bible study or being part of a Bible study or serving in some other capacity in the kitchen crew or handing out bulletins or vacuuming the building or showing up for a work day or any other kind of church activity. It isn't a matter of activity. That's an outward thing. Now, God wants a work on the inside. And if he does that work in the inside, then we'll want to do those things. We'll want to participate in those activities. Why? Because we're part of Christ's body. He's been good to us, and we want to have a part with his work. He totally changes us from the inside out through the gift of eternal life and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We end up serving, but not because we're made to or guilt-manipulated into it, but because we love to. We love to serve God We love to serve people because God serves people. Jesus was a servant, wasn't he? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Paul has shown that there is such a thing as religion without righteousness. You can have religion and not be in a right relationship with God. In a sense, religion is something that, well, I don't know, it's I offer it to God. And righteousness is something that God offers to me through his son. What a difference. Religion is what a person does for God. And righteousness is what God has done for the person who puts his faith in him. God provides it. Religion depends on our behaving, doesn't it? Behaving. Righteousness depends on believing, not behaving. Religion deals with the sufficiency of my character and my conduct, where righteousness deals with the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died for us. So the question, the question has to be, are you religious or are you righteous? Are you religious or are you righteous? You may have been religious your whole life and never became righteous before God because you never saw Jesus as the only way to be right with God. You were trusting in your fulfilling the rituals and the commandments and all those things. You know, going to church every Sunday or whenever the doors were open, being baptized going through some consecration process. I went to Awana. I memorized all those verses. 
I was part of the youth group, and, you know, I got stars for attendance, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I was gung-ho all the time. But did you know Jesus? Do you have a right relationship with God? Through faith in Jesus. That's the question. That's the issue that Paul is addressing. There is such a thing as religion without having a right relationship with God. Are you trusting in religion to save you from God's judgment? Or will you, will you understand and believe in the fact that God's Son bore your sins in his body as he hung on the tree so that you could have a right relationship with him? Verse 29 includes, it includes a play on words. Just offer this in the final words here. The word Jew comes from the Old Testament name of one of the tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob, Judah. Remember the 12 sons? Judah was one of them. And the name Judah meant, and still means, he shall be praised. He shall be praised. So religion, religion, what Paul is basically indicating, is that religion may help you to look good in the eyes of other people, and, and you can receive from them praise. And, and that may be all that you really desire, to receive the praise of people, because you're such a good person, such a religious person. But those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ will not receive their praise from men. They will receive their praise from God. That's what he ends with. His praise is not from man, but from God. So you must decide what you want more. Do you want the praise of men, which is temporary? If you don't get that in our society, you ought to see it every Every time you pick up the paper, a person that used to be held as like, you know, a wonderful person is now on the blackball list. The woke mentality is excluding them now. No more praise from men, only, you know, calls for putting them down. And that's the praise of men, it's temporary. Uh, But the praise of God, it will last forever. Because the relationship with God is forever because of what Jesus has done. So what's your choice? I can't assume that all of us here have made that choice of believing in Christ. If you have, praise him. And he praises you, apparently, for responding to the Holy Spirit and believing. To borrow a line from Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, You must make a choice. Choose wisely. Your eternity depends on it. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for this portion of scripture that shows us why we need him. (laughs) We all fall short of your glory. Whether we've been religious in our life or not, We need his righteousness imputed to our account. He bore our sins that we might be robed in his righteousness, and we're thankful for that. Help us, even us who know you, and 
have established a right relationship with you through faith in Jesus, help us not to fall back into thinking that our religious obedience keeps us right with you. No. Being right with you will always depend on your grace given through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, if there's someone here who hasn't really come to know you, they don't have a right relationship because they've been trusting in their religion, in their practices. We draw them to faith in Christ right now. Will you turn them from that, that sin of idolatry, really, because that's what it is, trusting in something that they do. We turn them from that, bring them to faith in Christ and to the gift of eternal life. We'll give you praise for that. We ask you to bless the food that we're going to eat on the other side as well. Thank you for your kind provision of that physical necessity that you created us with. Thank you for the fact that you take care of us. You give us all that we need for life and godliness. So we praise your holy name in Jesus' holy name. Amen.